You're listening to the Mission Church Podcast. We hope that you will be encouraged and built up in your relationship with Jesus as you hear the preaching and teaching of God's Word. If Mission Church is not your home church, it is our heart that this podcast will be supplemental and not a substitute to you belonging to a local church in your community. If we can help you get connected to a church in your community, please let us know. Now we hope you enjoy the message from our Sunday gathering. If you have a Bible, would you open it up to Psalm chapter 3? Psalm chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, everything that you're going to need, every verse, everything will be up on these screens here. Last week, actually two weeks ago, we launched a teaching series through the book of Acts. We're going to pause today because last week we talked about prayer. And so we're going to pause, we're going to spend some time continuing that discussion about prayer in Psalm chapter 3. And you'll see why, hopefully, before we read this text, I think it's beneficial for us to to be aware of the fact that one of the purposes of the book of Psalms in the Scriptures is that for 2,500 years, it's been teaching God's people the language of prayer, the language of lament, the language of praise and confession. Essentially, what we see in the book of Psalms are the words that you and I are to pray And through the Psalms, God is giving us language, language to pray. And as the Psalms teach us the language of prayer, we see the important role that our emotions play into what we pray, the words that we pray. In Psalm chapter 3, what we're going to explore is this, the language of prayer, but specifically what it means to pray through our anxieties, through our fears, not stuff our emotions and deny them because that will destroy us. And in the same way, not to um, let our emotions take over, because that will destroy us as well, but rather to pray through them in the presence of God as we process our fears and anxieties before God. So, in Psalm 3, we're going to find ourselves smack dab in the middle of one of the most terrifying moments in King David's life. And we have front row seats as King David processes his fears and his anxieties before God. So let's take a look. Let's... Read Psalm chapter 3, the entire, 1 through 8. It says, A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. O Lord, how many are my foes! Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is now no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Now my goal this afternoon is to help make sense of this text, both practically and relationally, especially in regards to the language of prayer and how it is that you and I can pray in the midst of anxieties, in the midst of unideal circumstances, and and where our hope can be found. But before we dive into this, would you take a moment, just pray with me one more time. God, we we need you, Um, and we ask, Lord, that that you would be glorified. Ultimately, that's our goal. As we gather together as the church, that you would be glorified through the worship of singing and prayer and through teaching of your word, that you would ultimately be the one that's glorified, for you're the only one that truly deserves our praise. 
And subsequently, I ask, Lord, that you would continue to draw us closer to you. Those that are in here that don't know you, that you would give them the, the, the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, that they would leave here saved and on mission for you. Lord, I pray that the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. For you are my rock and my redeemer, and I love you. And we give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever felt like your life was falling apart? I know that that's a pretty intense question, and some of us just met. But have you ever been so full of fear, anxiety, so stressed out by a situation or circumstance that you were emotionally frozen, overwhelmed by the weight of your current reality? What did you do? Who or what did you turn to? How did you find rest? How did you pray in the middle of a dark night of the soul? When you're struggling with the very real emotion of fear and anxiety and the circumstances that precede it, what did you do? Because, I mean, let's just be real. Praying, especially praying with others and praying out loud, can be awkward, hard, difficult, weird, uncomfortable. That was true for me, especially growing up in the church that I grew up in. Praying, the examples of prayer, they were, they were very one-dimensional. Many times they lacked emotion, and I was a very emotional and angsty young man. And I struggled because it completely turned me off from it. It was almost like as soon as it was time to pray, everything going on in life, every emotion was turned off to the point that prayers were void of personality, of what seemed to be genuine life and and the truth of God's Word. And here's what I mean. In our Western view of a very Middle Eastern religious tradition, we have made our prayer and our worship responses into a mono-emotional event. You see, we like to wrap things up in a nice package with a pretty bow and make sure that it resolves. There's very little tension and absolutely no room for any angst. But as we look at our text today, I think that we'll see this is not the case. In Psalm 3, this is a group of psalms that make up the majority of the 150 psalms. Psalm 3 is called a psalm of lament. The psalms of lament help us answer the questions of, where do I go with my pain? How do I express my sorrow and my grief? What do I do when I feel disoriented, homeless, or alone? Or in the case of King David, what do I do when my son has kicked me out of my own home and is chasing me out of the city with thousands of soldiers? It's pretty intense. Psalm 3, before verse 1, we see a superscription. And it says this, A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. Now this superscription or heading is, is in the original text, in the original language in the Hebrew Bible. This wasn't added later on by editors, but rather it points us to the historical moment in which this psalm was written in the life of King David. And this whole story is found in 2 Samuel chapter 15 through 17. If you want to write it down, and you can go check that out later. But this event took place during the end of David's career. David's son, Absalom, essentially formed a resistance army and staged a successful coup against his father. And Absalom, well, he was strong. He was handsome. He was was charismatic and shrewd. And a ton of people turned against David and joined Absalom's revolt. David had no choice but to run for his life. He fled his own house. He fled his own city, the city that he established and ran into the hills with a few hundred people, which sounds like a lot, but we're told in in the text in 2 Samuel that he's being chased by 12,000 people, soldiers chasing him into the wilderness. 
Can you imagine the fear that David was experiencing as he fled into the wilderness, as he flees for his life? Can you imagine the heartbreak as he wept because his own son wanted him dead? Can you imagine the unknown he's experiencing? I mean, let's just be honest. That's a rough day. David's full of angst. He's full of anger, doubt, anxiety, and maybe even a desire for revenge, all mixed up in the fact that he loved his son. And God inspired him to pray through those emotions. And so it seems that maybe there's space for some tension in our prayers. Maybe there's some space for some raw humanity in our worship. Maybe there's space for struggle. And so David, inspired by God, prays through his fears by first identifying the source of his fears. And so in, the, in this model of prayer, the first thing David does is this. He brings his fears to God's attention. Look back at verse 1. O oh Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. David's troubles were real. They were growing. They were insurmountable. And he responded to them by praying and telling the Lord what his enemies were doing and what many of them were saying. And the heart of his complaint is found in this word, many. If you have a pen, underline that word in your Bible. It's repeated three times. Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying there's no salvation for him in God. It was enough that David's son became his declared enemy. But now David's people have turned against him. These were people David knew that David cared for and loved, that he trusted. And these same people were not only determined to end his reign as king, but to end his life. They wanted him dead. And now David's fear is two-sided. Not only is he being faced with a very real physical threat, but there's a whole other layer here. And it lies in which it lies in Absalom and the people's lies. Does that make sense? <laughs> I'll say that again. The, there's a whole other layer, and it's in the lies that Absalom and his armies were spreading about David. There we go. You see, David's heart was broken by what his enemies were doing, but his heart was being crushed by what they were saying. Look back at verse 2. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Now understand, these folks are not saying that they don't believe in God. That's not what they're saying at all. They're not even saying that they don't think that God can rescue and save and deliver people in general. What they're saying is this, David, God is done with you. David, there's no more favor for you. There's no salvation left for you. David, God will not save you. Now this is a very different kind of attack, isn't it? This isn't a physical attack on David's life, but rather this is an attack on David's identity. His sense of self, significance, and status. Many are saying of my soul, there, are, there is no salvation for me in God. This reference to David's soul indicates that this is a very personal attack. And the words, for him, write that down if you're taking notes, indicate that God, who is more than able to help rescue and deliver David, was not willing to do so. David's circumstances led onlookers onto David's life to conclude that God had turned his back on David. Now, this is a logical con conclusion. You see, there was a key moment in the life of David when his heart turned away from God and towards selfish, sinful desires. You guys remember the story of David where he saw this woman that he wanted, Bathsheba, and he forced himself on her? 
He got her pregnant, and then he conspired to kill her husband in which he was successful. And David, he eventually confesses his sin. We see that prayer of confession in Psalm 51. He repents, and God forgives him. But David still had to face the consequences of his sin. And it was from this moment in the, in the life of David, in his story, when his whole life begins to fall apart. His family falls apart. His kingdom falls apart. His life falls apart. And in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 11, it says, The Lord said, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And this ominous promise came to pass through Absalom's rebellion against David. And it caused people to conclude that the Lord was done with David. He was God's chosen king, but not anymore. Look at him now. This once exalted king, now look at him. As he runs for his life into the wilderness, from his own son, from his own people, What's being threatened here is not his life. That's true, and it is happening, but his identity is being threatened. Who is David now if he's not a successful king? Who is David now if he's not a successful father? However, verse 2 isn't simply a statement about David, but this is a statement about God, and it's a lie. And what makes this lie so powerful is that it's personal. There is no salvation for you in God. There might be salvation and grace and forgiveness and mercy for other people, but there's no help for you. You're beyond saving. You're beyond hope. Could you, can you relate to this feeling? I believe that many of us can, despite no one raising their hands. It's okay. I'm going to pretend like some of us can relate to this because it, it's in my notes. Because <laughs> one of the ways that Satan lies to people is to say this. All of these things in the Bible, all these promises of God, these things are true for other people, but they're not true for you. You're the exception to the rule. And some of us have heard these lies in our own thoughts. Some of us have been told these lies, and I'm sorry, but listen to me. We need to see those lies for what they are. It's a lie about God disguised as a lie about you. And if Satan can get you to believe the lie as he did in Genesis chapter 3, when he, they, the serpent said to Adam and Eve, did God really say not to do that? If he can get us to believe the lie that God's promises are true for everybody else, but they're not true for us. You know what he gets us into? Unbelief. Unbelief. So what do you do? How do you defeat those lies? How do we combat thoughts of unbelief? How do we pray through fear and anxiety? Man, I'm so glad that you asked that question because we see it in verse 3. David here begins to preach the gospel to himself by reminding himself about what is true about God. And friends, we need to do the same thing. We need to be reminded about what is true. We need to be daily preaching the gospel to ourselves. And that begins with the truth of who God is. And so David moves his attention off of his circumstances and on to God and God's character. Look at verse 3. You guys doing okay? Okay. Verse 3, but you, O Lord. Essentially he's saying, here's what's true about you, God. And he says, you are a shield about me. Now stop and think about this for a moment. What does a shield do? When I think about a shield, I immediately think of protection, and if part of your preparation for the day after you comb your hair and brush your teeth and get ready is to strap on a shield, 
what is your assumption about how your day is going to go? Is your assumption, well, I guess I better put on a shield just in case something happens? Now, I think that's not the case. The reason why you're putting on a shield is because you know horrible things are going to happen. You know things aren't going to go the way they should. A shield, what it does is it protects your most vital parts of who you are. And I think it's fair to say that although David trusts that things could get better here, they're likely to get worse. After all, there's 12,000 people chasing him. And so he recognizes the reality that things can get worse, and he says, God, even so, you are my shield. Now what does this mean? Well, it means that God may not prevent bad things from happening to you, but God will be there with you, protecting the most vital parts of who you are. And let's be honest, how many times have you, whether you experienced a hardship in your life, a season of confusion, maybe a tragedy, one of the basic assumptions is this, my life is falling apart. The wheels are falling off right now. God, you've forgotten about me. God, where are you? God, I don't know how to deal with this right now. And to the point of unbelief where we say, God, are you even real? Because if you were real, why would this be happening in my life? Now, here's the problem with this mindset. The root of that thought is the belief that God's role in your life is to prevent bad things from happening to you. It's the idea that God is really good and loving, which he is. But it's this idea that because he's good and loving, then he's going to prevent bad things from happening to me. He's not going to let anything happen. He's going to ensure that I'm happy and content. But church, please hear me. That is not the God of the Bible. That God does not exist. That is not the promise that God has made to us. But rather, the promise is that when life is broken in this broken world, broken by sin, when horrible things happen, God's promise is that He'll be there with us. He's going to walk through the valley of the shadow of death that we meditate upon that verse earlier. David is saying, look, I've never felt more close to God than I do right now. Friends, is it possible, without discounting hardships and circumstances that we're going through, that you might be going through. Is it possible that whatever hardships we experience are precisely the tools that God is using to shape us into the likeness of Jesus, to shape our character, to shape our hearts, to shape our minds? So God is a shield protecting the most vital parts of who I am. I could die, but God is still my shield. Now, the question is begging to be asked, what are the most important parts of who I am? Well, he says in verse 3, he continues, You, O Lord, are my glory. Now stop and think for a moment. Why does David say, Lord, you're my glory? Glory is a word that we don't really use that often. It can be confusing. The word used here, um, translated into the English word glory, is the Hebrew word kavod. Kavod. Everyone say kavod. Good job. When this word is used towards God, and when we gather to glorify God and through worship, we're saying, God, you are the most significant one, the most important one there is to know. However, we have a kavod too. Humans have a glory, and when this word, this Hebrew word is in, used in reference to us, it speaks to dignity, honor. But the reality is, at this point in David's life, remember I said earlier, this is the end of his career, he has lost all dignity. He has lost all honor. He has failed as a father. He has failed as a king. His family is completely falling apart. 
He's completely lost all of his moral integrity. He's at the bottom. And it's all because of this. He misplaced his glory. He misplaced his kavod. Rather than finding meaning and significance in God, he found meaning and significance in being the king. He found meaning and significance in power. He found it in himself. And so David, now at the lowest point in his life, has nothing left but to say, God, you are my kavod. You are my glory. You're the one that gives me significance. You're the one that gives me dignity. You're the one that gives me worth and meaning. David here is essentially saying that his identity, his self-worth, is rooted in who God is. Think about this. Literally, David is saying, I am somebody not because I am king, not because I have wealth or health, but I am somebody because I belong to the one who is the true king of heaven and earth. He's saying, the Lord is my kavod. The Lord is my glory. Finally, in verse 3, he says, you, O Lord, are the lifter of my head. We've established the fact that David has no reason to lift his head up in confidence anymore. He took what God gave him and he squandered it. He took what God gave him and he ruined it. He made horrible decisions and now this was his reality. This was the bed that he made and now he's to lie in it. And so David removes the focus off of himself back onto God and he essentially says, God, you are the lifter of my head. You're the one who gives me honor. You're the one who, even in the worst moments of my life, when everything around me points to the truth that I'm broken and that I'm a sinner and an utter failure, you are the reason I can hold my head up high because you're the one who lifts my head. You're the one who restores my dignity. Now, how can David be so confident? Is it just simply arrogance? I don't think so. Look at verse 4. He says, I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. How can David be so confident? He's running for his life. He's morally compromised. He's failed as a father and the king, but he's confident. And it's because it has nothing to do with him. He's confident because it has everything to do with who God is and where God is answering him from. Look what it says. The Lord answered him from his holy hill. And this is important. Because we see this phrase and phrases like it throughout the Bible in the Old Testament. Phrases like holy hill or holy mountain or mountain of Zion. All through the Psalms we see this. And they speak to the city of Jerusalem. But more specifically, it speaks to the highest hill in the city, where, which was where the very presence of God was in the temple. And David is saying, look at me. I'm out here in the wilderness I'm a failure and I'm a sinner, but you, God, are my glory. You're the one who lifts my head. You're the one I find my identity in. And you're the one who gives me confidence. And I'm praying to you because I know that you answer me because you're answering me from that temple, from the very hot spot of your presence in Jerusalem. Now, what does this mean for us? We're getting there. What happened on a regular regular occasion in that temple? What was... What was it that happened there that would allow a selfish man, sinful man, broken man to look towards that temple and have confidence that God has forgiven him and shown him grace? It was the sacrifices of the animals that were offered as a substitute for the consequences of people's sin. And here's how it would work. The animal would die in the place of and instead of the sinner. The animal animal bears the guilt instead of the wrongdoer. In essence, the death of the substitute covers over the failure and sin of the one who is praying and looking to God at the temple. 
You see, what could possibly give a man like David, who squandered everything, what is it that could possibly give him such confidence that God is for him? Well, it's because David is looking towards the substitute that covers his sin. That's what gave him confidence that the Lord heard him, that the Lord is for him and has forgiven him. Church, how much more confident should you and I be? We are on the other side of the cross, and our conviction is that Jesus was the ultimate substitute. Jesus' his life, Jesus' his death, his resurrection on our behalf covers our sin as Jesus, in his death, absorbed into himself the consequences of sin that we deserve. And in his resurrection, Jesus provides both a covering and a source of new life and grace for those who would turn from their sin and turn towards Jesus and receive new life and new grace for those who would turn away from their sin and turn to Jesus as their Lord and their Savior. Friends, this is good news. Jesus, the other son of David, who lived a perfect life, a life that you and I cannot live and honestly, have chosen not to live, Jesus was executed. Jesus was resurrected near this holy hill that David is referring to in Psalm 3. And friends, this now gives us the ability to pray through our fears, to pray through our anxieties as followers of Jesus, but also to go on the the same journey that David goes on here, which is good, because look at verse 5. David could finally get a good night's sleep. What's one thing he's hard to do, especially when you're struggling through anxiety and fears and circumstances in your life. He says, I laid down, in verse 5, and I slept. That sounds wonderful. I have three kids under the age of six. I don't know. Sleeping. What is that? But David says, he laid down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Anxiety will keep you up at night. I know this from personal experience, and the truth is, more often than not, there's a spiritual root to my sleeplessness. And what I've done as I lay awake at night, tossing and turning in my bed, is to take a personal inventory of my soul and ask, what do I need to turn over to the Lord? What is it that I'm attempting to find my glory in? Who or what am I looking to to find rest What do I need to turn over to the Lord? David recognized the source of his fear and anxiety, and he turned it over to God, where he rested in the fact that God has done for him what he could not and could never do for himself. And as a result, he slept without fear, without anxiety, trusting God to sustain him. And David ends his prayer here with a request, verse 7 and 8. We're almost there, guys. Thank you for the way you're listening. Verse 7, Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. In the closing verses of this psalm, David gives his conflict to God. And these words, I don't know about you, but when I read them, I'm like, that's pretty harsh. But the point is this. David doesn't take matters into his own hands. Instead, he asks God to fight his battles. The truth is, friends, you and I, we will be betrayed. We will be opposed. And David's response to his opposition gives us an example of how we are to respond when we're faced with opposition. Instead of lashing out, what does David do? He prays through his anger. He leaves whatever lashing out there is in the wise and just hands of God. 
And so what does David's rescue from Absalom mean for us today? On one hand, we can imitate David's faith and trust God's promises. But on another level, there's something more to this text. There's something more to this psalm. David's deliverance from Absalom was a physical rescue from real deadly danger. He called out to God to save his life, and God saved him. The problem is, friends, you and I will not always be saved, delivered from trouble and danger like David was. God doesn't always rescue us from physical danger or unideal circumstances when we call out to him. So how can we be strengthened by this song? What does David's rescue mean for us today? We have to understand that David was a model. You see, David was a model of a greater king who was to come. As God's anointed king, David points forward to Jesus. Psalm 3 points you and me to Jesus. David's rejection by his own family points forward to Jesus' rejection. In John chapter 1, verse 11, it says, Jesus came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Jesus was also rejected as king. His family thought he was insane. His hometown would not believe in him. And just as David's enemies taunted him, saying there's no salvation for you in God, Jesus was taunted as he hung on the cross. And we see this in Matthew chapter 27, verse 43, which says, He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now. If he desires, for he said, I am the Son of God. David's lying down, sleeping, and waking points to Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. You see, Church, the goal here is not to look to David. Don't be like David. You're not David. But to look to Jesus and to be like Jesus. In verse 8 again, salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. I read this this morning in preparation for today again, and I thought, this is crazy. This is absolutely nuts. And it's crazy because David is praying for the ones who have rejected him. He's praying for the ones who want him dead. And David's love for the people who turned against him anticipated Jesus' love for you and for me who rejected him. It anticipates Jesus' love for us. See, we're not David in this story, but we're one of the 12,000 who are out to kill David. The good news for us, though, is in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, which says this, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners... While we were rebelling against God, while we were his enemies, what did Jesus do? He died for us. Church, the only hope for rebellious people like you and like me is through this very King Jesus who we have betrayed. And this psalm is pointing us forward to a greater king, a greater salvation. We must look to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, and it's in this psalm where we see this pattern of life. Jesus' suffering led to glory because God sustained him. God may not save you from suffering like he saved David from death, but he will save you through death and suffering like he saved Jesus. Romans 6, 5, For if we have been united with him in death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Friends, you may be hard-pressed tonight. Your family Your friends may have turned against you. You might have lost your job through this pandemic. Your own children may turn against you like David, steal from you, hurt you. But the promise of the gospel is this. You'll lie down, you'll sleep, and you'll wake again. For the Lord loves you and He will sustain you. If you believe this, you will sleep in peace. 
you'll be able to face death with confidence knowing that God will sustain you. But this life is only found in Jesus and Jesus alone. Let's pray. God, we thank you that while we were rebelling against you, while we are your enemies, you loved us so much that you lived a life that we cannot live and chosen not to live. You died the death, not only for us, but instead of us. It was the death that we deserve, but you paid that penalty of our sin so that we might have life by trusting in you. And so God, I pray now that for anyone who does not know you, that you would give them saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. You say, Lord, that those who call upon your name will be saved. And I pray, God, that you'd be glorified through that. I pray, Lord, that as we leave here today, that in the midst of just the crazy world that we're living in now, that we'd find our rest in you. We'd find our glory in you. That you would lift our heads as we strive to live on mission to lead others to you. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.